Thank you, Evelyn. Thank you very much. Uh, when you read all those places I taught, it sounded like I couldn't hold a job. But actually, <laughs> I was, I'm older than I look, and I stayed at these places a very long time. Uh, it is with great pleasure, really great pleasure, that I introduce uh, Georgi Matveyevich Derlugian, who is a compatriot in many ways. Uh, 42 years ago, in Krasnodar, in the North Caucasus, Georgi was born, and of a Cossack mother and an Armenian father. Armenians are a very small nationality, but they are a majority up here tonight. And um, we take anyone we can get into our fold, whether they're fully Armenian by blood, whether they're half Armenian, a quarter Armenian, whether they like Armenian food or music, whatever they are, we'll take them. We believe in the construction of nationality. <laughs> Georgi was educated in Russia, uh, trained in Moscow as an Africanist. He speaks at least six languages, uh, English pretty well, as you'll find out, Russian fluently, um, uh, Portuguese, which he used in his research, and at least has knowledge of four others, uh, three of them in African languages. He specialized in Portuguese Africa and Mozambique. He served in some mysterious capacity in Mozambique that he can tell you about, but I don't know that much about. A member of the Special Forces, one third of his salary apparently paid by the KGB at one point, uh, but also as a researcher uh, and wrote a dissertation eventually on Mozambique's War of Independence. He was a graduate of Moscow State University and a, has a Candidat Nauk, which is like a PhD from the Institute of World History of the Academy of Sciences. He is a Renaissance man in many ways. He is not only fluent in all these languages and in his knowledge of Africa, but uh, he is a, uh, also fluent in what you can call macro sociological theory. Macro sociology or macro history is extraordinarily interesting. It's the attempt to write big stories about big, big subjects over big, long uh, expanses of time. And his mentors, like Immanuel Wallerstein and those who study the world systems theory, uh, try this endeavor in the long tradition of other great founders of sociology, like Marx and Weber, uh, or Charles Tilley at the present moment, or Michael Mann. This is something, by the way, that's largely been lost in history it exists to a small extent in political science, but I think it does well and thrives in sociology. And Georgi mentions in some of his work uh, his indebtedness to Randall Collins, who has written a book uh, about this whole enterprise of macro sociology. But if I were to characterize his work, I would call him, I don't know if there's really a term for this, something like a social, sociological ethnographer. He does sociological ethnography. That is, he goes into places like the North, North Caucasus with all their complexities, with all their various uh, nuanced cultures, their mixes and their, their, their distance and foreignness from the worlds we know, and he pays close and sensitive attention to what's going on. He talks to people, does interviews, he collects various uh, items like videotapes, uh, uh, looks at signs, reads posters, and so forth, and is able, through this ethnographic approach, to build up a larger picture of what's going on, uh, rather than to impose theories uh, from above on these other milieus. 
And in his work, in a series of, in a number of articles in the New Left Review, a journal I'm sure you all know, uh, or in his forthcoming book, which will be available soon, Bourdieu's Secret Admirer in the Caucasus, or in the edited volume with Scott Greer, Questioning Geopolitics, uh, he shows the kinds of insights that can pr be produced by precisely this close ethnographic sensitivity. He's now working on several projects, a book on privatization and a book on Ichkeria, which is another name for Chechnya. And so I introduce a uh, professor of sociology at Northwestern University, Georgi Terlugian. Thank you very much. I might yet even get tenure with such introductions. Um, all right. I need to explain first on the title of my forthcoming book. So in a uh, very slushy winter, just like this, in 97, I end up uh, getting out from Chechnya where, yes, I do this kind of research. In the book, actually, there is a whole chapter. First chapter, I describe one day spent at the rally of the gentleman who turns out to be a very prominent terrorist. Um, so I get out of there and uh, in a very small republic about which you probably never heard, which is very fortunate for this republic, Kabardina-Balkaria. You heard about Chechnya because there is carnage going on. You never heard about Kabardina-Balkaria because they just narrowly missed their turn in history to go down the same drain as Chechnya went. Uh, so, in terms of political science, it's kind of a fascinating case, you know, very, very s similar setting, but what variables switched the course of history. Uh, so, they introduced me to a man who was the local rebel leader, but uh, really there is no more any rebellion going on. The man looks pretty much, so I do believe in show and tell, so you have the pictures I have. I'm sorry, I did not really expect so many people to show up, I'm touched, but I know, probably I'm uh, too deep in my Northwestern habitus. I expected three to five people for a talk on God knows where. Uh, so you can share, please. Uh, this is Zelimhan Yandarbiev. It's a different guy. But he also has the same papaha hat, you know, this tall sheepskin uh, traditional hat that previously only shepherds used. Uh, you can also see, you know, this is kind of visual ethnography practice. Uh, there are just five years between these two pictures. In fact, they are both taken from the back cover of his memoirs, uh, first edition and second edition. First edition, you can see uh, a beginner poet dressed like any East European, you know, corduroy jacket, uh, some beard, you know, probably no longer than mine, kind of intellectual bohemian kind of beard. And on the other picture, look, it's construction of identity. We speak about it very theoretically. But it's just raw going on. Look at his hat. Look at the de uh, how his beard grew. I had since in sociology, in, gen in general, we love uh, quantitative analysis, and we need data, you know, something you can turn into numbers. So I suggested measuring in centimeters the growth of their beards as an indicator of Islamization going on at, at the time. So you can see how beards grow longer. Of course, he has a camouflage jacket, 
is a warrior. So the hat, national, beard, Islamic, jacket, warrior. There is a national homemade gun called Bors, which means wolf in Chechen. Very proud of those guns, not a Russian Kalashnikov. And he still, it's very, not very visible, but he still has a necktie. He's an intellectual. After all, he's an educated man. So they introduced me to one of these gentlemen uh, in Papaha hat. And uh, if you're doing research in the Caucasus, Professor Sunni knows this. You have to hold your alcohol because they're going to make you drink and drink, and your banquets are ubiquitous, endless. So you're sitting for five hours drinking local made vodka, uh, listening to speeches about, let's drink to the freedom of small nations against imperial domination, and so on. And I'm trying to pose questions you know, somewhat more specifically. So what did happen in your republic that you don't have a war? Why you guys were defeated or anything? like? I'm despairing. After five hours, you would despair. And I'm feeling uh, quite bad already after a liter of vodka. And at that point, this gentleman in Papaha suddenly absolutely changes his whole attitude. He stands up and says, my dear Armenian brother, let me embrace you. You should forgive us. My security was really worried about you because you speak Russian like a native. You know way too much about us. But you're not a journalist, so we couldn't decide, do you work for the KGB because you're from here, or do you work for the CIA because you're from America? But now I can see you're really a sociologist because evidently you know the work of Pierre Bourdieu. And you know what is habitus and social capital? And uh, I drop in my chair and look at him and do you? And say, of course. He says, Shaw's deed of Pierre Bourdieu is the second most important reading in my life after Holy Al-Quran. Uh, so then uh, this is the beginning of, of the book. You know, Bourdieu himself got flabbergasted when, when he learned about this. So I sent a picture of Shanibov, uh, president of the Confederation of the Mountain Peoples of the Caucasus, uh, to Emmanuel Wallerstein, who was in Paris, and told him, Emmanuel, if you bump into Bourdieu, why don't you entertain him? You know, this is one of his admirers, about whom he probably hadn't been informed. Um, and then things turn out not as funny at all. One of the uh, assistants to uh, Professor Shanibov, who of course before becoming a warlord was professor of sociology, or actually scientific communism at a local university, one of his uh, assistants, uh, who actually had only one job in his life, uh, formally, he was um, whatever you call that on uh, on the farms. Uh, the people who help to artificially inseminate cows, uh, zootechnician, it's called uh, in Russian. Uh, he was uh, a student for one year, but flunked after the freshman year, and after that became uh, a rather successful guerrilla commander in Chechnya. His name is Shamil Basayev, and some of you probably heard about him. So this is the guy who had hijacked, and you know, he started by hijacking an airplane in 1991, um, famously took a whole hospital with more than 1,000 hostages in southern Russia uh, in the middle uh, of the first Chechen war in 95, and recently he took uh, responsibility for uh, 
the hostage taking in the theater in Moscow last October. Um, and after September 11th in this country, I looked into my notes and I realized that I actually heard people speaking about Osama bin Laden, that they have been in contact evidently. So I'm one of these weird sociologists who actually did some, as it turns out, fairly direct observation of Al-Qaeda, or at least you know how uh, recruitment was going on. How to explain then this? The problem is that it took me almost 350 pages of book manuscript to explain just how a provincial sociologist, Musa Shanib, becomes a warlord. They are complex people. They might be funny sometimes in a very weird way. For instance, the same Shamil Basayev, who is somehow associated with bin Laden, as it turns out, uh, I haven't interviewed him directly, but a friend of mine did, and she is, Fiona Hill is her name, she is uh, from Scotland, as it turns out. So at first Basayev, almost the same situation as mine, was thinking she was an American and then learns she is actually from Scotland and not just from Scotland, she is from the Highlands. And then he mellows and says, I'm a Highlander too, and you are a Highlander. And then wait a minute, and you know, he rushes back and comes back from his personal quarters and brings a very battered copy of the Braveheart, saying that this is my favorite film. I watched it 14 times. My dream is to die like Mel Gibson shouting freedom. So there is some irony in this, and you can say it's postmodern or something. What I see in it, however, is a very rapid transfer. The irony is created by an extremely, historically very compressed demodernization, as some people now call it, of the society that the Soviet Union actually put pretty much firmly in the 20th century. So these people from the roles in uh, industrial Soviet society within two, three years, grow beards, you know, uh, don those jackets, camouflage jackets, uh, get guns, and they become actually pretty fearsome warriors. This is quite serious, I think. And this is a big sociological, theoretical problem, but I'm omitting all theory. So uh, if you want to read, in some, uh, to some extent, um, that's the introduction to the book by Anna Politkovskaya that, that is sitting there. I still had to fight with John Turneski, who allowed me, after all, 30 pages of an introduction. And I packed, you know, like my mom would pack a suitcase, all the facts there. So all the vitamins and nutrients are in 30 pages. Uh, a lot of theory. Bourdieu, Wallerstein, uh, I'm mentioning, however, the theoretical concepts you know, as such, uh, explaining uh, how could it be that a society first becomes modernized in the Soviet way and then so rapidly, not demodernized, but collapses. Or as uh, a prominent Russian anthropologist, another Armenian, Sergei Arutunov, very aptly compared it. He said, when lights go out, electrical lights go out in the house, people go into the barn and somewhere in the back of the barn they find a battered oil lamp and bring it back into their house. So these kind of battered oil lamps are being brought back because there is no more electricity in very many instances, literally, for years. Can you imagine? Towns in the Caucasus, Yerevan, Tbilisi, towns with more than one people, uh, more than one million uh, people living there still, with high rises, 
going for years without electricity, going without central heating. Uh, how do people survive in those conditions and what is going to happen to their heads? Uh, what, how do they imagine the world and their place in the world? So very, very uh, briefly, in a very compact version, and you make questions later if, if you wish, I'm going to address key, not so much key issues in the Caucasian historical formation, what Professor Suni mentioned, this macro-historical picture. But I'm going rather to relate the standard mythology, of which you might be aware or subconsciously aware, so the kind of general myth that the people have in their heads about who are Chechens or who are Armenians and what we, historical sociologists, can reconstruct. I'm not claiming it's truth, but I'm claiming that we have kind of scientific rational tools. I entertain such an idea that we can measure and try to relate such hypotheses to each other, test them somehow. And then what are the ideas that people have? And it's a completely different story how we study why do people have those ideas and they make sense to them. So first of all, Chechens are children of the wolf, or she-wolf rather. Uh, the great idea that they are so fierce because they're tribesmen from up in the mountains, their symbol is she-wolf that nourished the forefathers of the Chechen people. I actually asked uh, a friend of mine who was director of Institute of Chechen History when such a thing existed. And he said that, you know, the first mentioning of the she-wolf as our ancestor dates back to 1990, during perestroika, when people began sort of inventing identities. People got a very, very curious about who we are, where do we come from. And some old man, a teacher at school, whom they called people's academician, he had no formal degree, but he was very knowledgeable of ancient history of his people, he wrote, an article in a local newspaper saying that she wolf is our foremother. And it kind of caught up and the wolf, female wolf, got on the Chechen coat of arms, on the nationalist flag, uh, on the insignia of the warriors fighting in the mountains. People die uh, for this insignia. So it becomes something very dear. You cannot take it away. The old uh, academician had died shortly after, uh, from natural causes uh, at that time, and 10 graduate students were dispatched to sift through his archive. Nowhere they found any source for the image, for the emblem of the she-wolf. Was it pure invention? But who cares? People are now dying and killing for that emblem, that matter. Now, why such a reputation for fierceness? In many of those books, you will see that uh, at least half of the authors are quoting from Leo Tolstoy and Lermontov and 19th century authors saying that Chechens are special people, you know, that absolutely untamable, wild, savage, uh, evil bandits, wonderful, uh, free in their spirit. There is nobody between the Chechens and Allah. They never submit to any authority and so on. All these stereotypes of, uh, in positive or negative way, pointing to their complete disrespect of authority. What is there? Actually, something fascinatingly interesting. It turns out, that's my research, I'm boasting here, that in the 17th, late 17th century, 300 years ago, a new American crop, which in this country is called simply corn, or in Britain is called maize, 
in other countries is in other languages it's called maiz, or in Armenian it's called Egyptozoren, Egyptian wheat, it already points somewhere. And in Circassian languages, it, it has a very wonderful name, Nartif, the grain of giants, or the millet of giants. And in Chechen language, literally the word for corn or maize is Hajiz bread. So somebody from, brought from Hajj, probably to Mecca, or from the Middle East, brought the first seeds of corn. Now corn is at least three times more productive than traditional millet. Which means that we know from the rest of the world, from tropical Africa, from the Balkans, from southern China, uh, that once corn is introduced, a generation later we have a major demographic impact. Basically, you can feed more babies. They don't die at such a rate anymore. You have more people, you need more land. But the problem is that in the Caucasus, traditionally, it was extremely dangerous to descend from the mountains. Chechens speak a language, it's just nice little trivia, they speak a language that belongs to the North Caucasus family, and that's family. That's the same order of magnitude like Indo-European or Afrasian, or what you called Semitic previously languages. There are, by different counts, like 35 to 50, what you count like a dialect, you never know, like probably 35 to 50 languages in the family, there are just two million speakers in the world in this family. One half of them are Chechens. One million are Chechens, one million are the rest of those languages. There are languages that are spoken in just one village, for instance. Uh, how come? Why these languages survive in the Caucasus? Basically, look at the map. And I do believe, you know, I'm one of uh, descendants proud of Fernand Bordel. We do believe in maps very strongly. Look, the Caucasus is a rock between two very hard places. To the south, the ancient civilizations of the Middle East. Basically, Mesopotamia begins right after Armenia. To the north, you have the Great Steppe being swept by the nomadic invasions from Inner Asia, generation after generation. From Sumerians, the Scythians, the Huns, uh, the Alans, uh, all the way to Mongols and to the Kalmyks. So there are two big separate worlds. In the middle is this rock of the Caucasus. The mountains gave refuge to the relic populations. Basically imagine it this way. So if the mountains, the ranges are going down like these fingers and valleys are between the fingers, the wind blows and people get blown up the valleys. They're small peoples, very small sometimes, because mountains cannot, they can protect, but they cannot feed many people. Mountains are very difficult environments. But now, these people get enough food that can, they can grow up in the mountains, and then comes the second great innovation, which is gun. It is amazing that nobody, as I, as I discovered, you know, there are so many books on history of swords, and basically aesthetic approach to weapons. How beautiful are medieval oriental swords? All these things displayed in, in collections. Uh, now, my question was, how much did it cost? How many people could arm themselves with this? Well, you, you watched The Lord of the Rings. Have you wondered to you know just how expensive it should be to equip one of those, you know, Legolases or whoever? Uh, it turns out that it cost a lot. It cost the equivalent to equip one mounted knight 
in the North Caucasus, um, there were knight, knightly, princely estates in many of these tribes. It caused the equivalent of 2,000 cows. To understand you know, 2,000 cows, that's more than one village could possess. Now, again, as it turns out, once they figured out locally how to counterfeit, and this is a long Asiatic, nice, adaptable tradition that people wear the Adidas or the Nikes made in Turkey. If you go in the Caucasus, you will see everywhere. This counterfeits of everything, counterfeit Sony's, counterfeit Nikes. So in the 17th century, there were counterfeit German rifles that cost five to seven uh, cows. Still a good price, but already a farmer's lad could buy a gun and put a neat hole through the very expensive chain mail of a prince. So these people are being pushed from the mountains up into the fertile plains. There are more of them. They can feed still more. They get more land. They can feed more people with their corn. And they can defend this land. It's a very rambunctious frontier. Everybody carries, carries a gun, at least every male. Boys carry pistols. Many females are very famous for that. And there is no centralized authority whatsoever. It's kind of wild west. Everybody is a cowboy, if you can imagine, or in a very simple way. But a closer analogy, it is closer, it would be ancient Rome. There were, until the foundation of Republic, there were foreign Etruscan kings this is something fascinating because we can test Max Weber, for instance, Barrington Moore on the Chechen material. Uh, there were Etruscan kings, Rexes, in ancient Rome, and then there was a rebellion, as you know, because, and then uh, for the Romans, it was the invention or the spread of iron, which was cheaper than bronze weapons, which allowed to uh, field more egalitarian legionaries. Uh, here, many, many hundreds of years later, in another environment, it is gun. It is a relatively cheap, robust rifle. There were rifles, okay, grooved rifles, that allows this spontaneous peasant democratization. They basically drove away, and we have fascinating examples when tribesmen, let's say 1750, 1760 Christian era, tribesmen get together and they vote to deny any hospitality to the princes and kings by equating them with dogs. Because even your enemy, this is a mountain society, hospitality is just as sacred as vendetta. If, if the enemy knocks on your door, you must provide shelter and food to the enemy. But if the dogs come, you're exempt. So if you formally proclaim your elite to be dogs, you can kill them. They're stray dogs. This produces a massive civil war in the Caucasus and this incredible democratization that went hand in hand with a very peculiar kind of Islamization. There is no evidence that Chechens or any other people in the North Caucasus had been really Muslims before the 18th century. Just 250 years ago, something like that, they become very ardent Muslims because they take the Sufi variety of Islam, and I'm not going into any theological detail, but basically it's an analogy to the Western Christian frontier fundamentalism. When people took in the Old Testament uh, the ready-made template of how, say, in South Africa, the Afrikaners, whom we mentioned, or American frontiersmen, they took from the uh, sort of primitive society described and enshrined in the Old Testament the template of how to organize the earthly affairs in the modern age, 
Likewise, Islam produced the same, very egalitarian message, actually for the Chechens, that we are all Muslims, we are all true believers, there should be no hierarchy among the Muslims, and of course jihad is a very important thing for, for these people because those who are trying to take away our land are enemy. And everybody should be organized regardless of your tribe, regardless of your clan. So Islam provided this pan-ethnic ideology. When a Chechen and Cherkassian, uh, Dagestani could get together, these people sometimes could not speak the same language. You know, they, they had lots of different languages in the Caucasus. But Islam provided the unifying network. Now imagine the Russian Empire walked right into this revolution in the 1780s, 1790s. For the Russian Empire, the Caucasus was just a little geographical obstacle on their way to India, because like all European colonialists at that time, they wanted to get to India, because that's where the riches were at the time. They never expected that there would be such a protracted and difficult war in the Caucasus. Now, at first, all they wanted from the natives is just, you guys shut up, feel very happy that a big European power finally reached you, um, pay taxes, uh, help to build roads, uh, maintain garrisons here, and that's how the world operates. You know, the white people from Europe conquer you and civilize you and rule you and you obey. And eventually you will join civilization in this way. Now, of course, you realize that the Chechens could not accept that. Basically, somebody, and besides, uh, for the Russian officers, it was extremely difficult even to reconcile this idea that these are essentially rebel peasants from the Russian standpoint. Russian imperial officers are aristocrats. They would never, ever, in their mind, deal on an equal footing with rebel peasants. These are run-away away serfs. These people should be inserted properly. Um, so this produces an extremely acute contradiction between the two sides. Not only they don't understand each other, they are well organized, both sides. The Russians are organized, of course, as imperial army. The Chechens are organized by their peasant rebellion. And this leads to a very bloody, very protracted, and heroic, in many instances, genuinely heroic war uh, that lasted basically on the 1790s and, until the final defeat in 1864. Colonel Colt actually supplied his six-shooter to the Russian army, the first army in the world to adopt the American system of Colonel Colt. If you ever visit Hartford in Connecticut, you know, observe, and on, the, on your way to the Yale campus, there is a nice Russian-style church dome over Colonel Colt's factory. That's because he was invited as a guest of honor to the coronation of Tsar Alexander II, uh, was big friend with the Tsar and uh, because Russia was his first customer. The federal government in this country refused to buy Colts. They were too expensive for the Americans at that time. So the American technology helped to conquer the Caucasus and then the story is that the next time the Caucasians rose in arms in 1917, of course, when the Russian Empire collapsed, and then it turns out they saved the Reds, they saved the Bolsheviks. Because when the Bolsheviks in the North Caucasus were defeated, it's another absolutely wonderful story, Comrade Arginikidze and Comrade Kirov went up in the mountains, found refuge among the Chechens, and over two weeks they conducted theological debate about the teaching of Comrade Karl Marx and the teaching of the Prophet. 
And in the end, the Chechen village ulema, and of course you, recognize, uh, you should be aware of what kind of Islam they practice. There are no muftis there. There is absolutely no hierarchy. It's very robust, very peasant Islam. They officially recognize that there, and this document was in the Grozny, in Chechnya, in the Grozny Historical Museum. The fatwa, the religious ruling, officially recognizing the Red Army as the army of jihad. Uh, so in 1919, these red-green partisans, as they were called, red and green, Islamic green and Bolshevik red, jointly struck in the rear of the white army of General Denikin, and Denikin had to take to two of his best Cossack divisions from the battlefront near Moscow, sent back to the Caucasus, and this basically caused him his campaign. That's how Red Moscow was saved. Um, for this incredible uh, feat, the Chechens got their own small republic, and you can read in uh, Professor Suni's books and just how nationality policy worked in the Soviet Union, why the Bolsheviks decided, or Terry Martins, it's the, the affirmative action empire, it's like the ultimate volume on what was the Soviet nationality policy, you know, why, why it developed the way it did, and what was the place of nationalities there. The problem, however, with the Chechens, of course, was that they expected a totally different kind of socialism from Stalin or the Soviet Union, and they get quite disillusioned by the, let's put it mildly, you know, by collectivization in the 1930s. Uh, they rebel once again, and these are peasants who always had guns, well, always in their memory, to whom their Islam and their weapons are not just guarantee of their property in earthly affairs. This is part of their self-perception of who they are. So only in 1944, basically uh, what Stalin did was uh, what I call very modernistic laboratory approach. Those of you who know James Scott, I just will sign, uh, cite one theoretical work, Seeing Like a State. I don't know of a better book to understand what was the Soviet Union about. James Scott's Seeing Like a State. Basically, it was the attitude, uh, Stalin viewed the world as a god, but also a scholar. To him, it was all laboratory. And so one of his experiments went awry. So what do you do? You know, you have the material that didn't return the results you expected, so you take the material and dump it. They took a whole people. At the time, it was 350,000, roughly. They took the whole Chechen and Ingush people in one day in 1944, put them on the train and carted to Central Asia and to Siberia and said, okay, now you're going to be under much better control of the authority. Basically, they wanted them to be under the control of authority. Probably one third of the people on those trains did not survive the trip. It was February, it was cold, they were distraught psychologically terribly, they were packed into those cattle cars, so in every Chechen family, there is a victim, maybe more. One third of the Chechens who lived at least in 1991, at the time of the rebellion against the Soviet Union, one third were born in exile. Uh, they come back eventually, and here is a very, very important uh, part that is completely overlooked in all this story of, okay, they have been fighting against this Russian and Soviet domination forever. No, that's something very, very interesting. When in 1991, the Soviet Union falls apart and the Chechen revolutionaries, basically these guys, seize power, 
there was not a single Islamic scholar among them. There was not a single peasant. There, was, there were no Sufi mystics. There were no traditional honorable bandits, the abracts, as they call. There was a poet, a journalist, well, a failed student uh, at the Ag Agronomical Academy, or Agronomical College, and the leader was General of the Soviet Air Force, General Johar Dodaev, who previously rose to the high rank by, he was in strategic uh, bombing aviation, so these big things. So he was quite famous for advocating carpet bombing in Afghanistan in the early 1980s, because what else, you know, he controlled heavy bombers. He had absolutely no qualms bombing fellow Muslims in Afghanistan, for instance, for the sake of establishing their Soviet regime. Uh, for these people, it's something very odd. You know, can you imagine Palestinians rising to the rank of general in the Israeli Air Force and speaking mostly Hebrew to each other? For instance, uh, the people who make uh, parallels between Hamas and, say, Chechen resistance usually say that this is the same. You know, they are uh, Muslims for X, Y, and Z reason rebelling against uh, the state that is dominating them. But the problem is that lots of Chechens achieved relatively high ranks. You know, they pursued careers in the 60s and 70s, and they actually achieved a lot. The speaker of the Russian parliament under Yeltsin was an ethnic Chechen and was actually first big friend of Yeltsin and then very big enemy, Professor Ruslan Hasbulatov. Otherwise, he was professor of economics uh, in Moscow. There were lots of other Chechens in, actually, way too many. You know, Chechens are just under one million people. And they were vastly overrepresented uh, in many of the Soviet institutions. So the question is, why did they rebel? Well, in 1991, when Yeltsin was running for the president of Russia against the communist officials uh, whose names nobody remembers today, Yeltsin won. Very few people realize that in Chechnya, he scored the highest uh, proportion of vote anywhere in Russia. He was extremely popular in Chechnya because, once again, like in 1917, they supported the Bolsheviks because they thought that these are the guys who are going to end the empire. In 1991, they believed Yeltsin because they, they thought this is the guy who's going to end the empire again, that we should be able to go in the street openly and proudly proclaim ourselves to be Chechens, and if necessary, if, yes, practice our Islam, because you want to bury your mother or your father according to the norms of your religion. Uh, you want to have dignity in this. You want to be able to perform your rights. You want also the state, the Soviet state, to recognize that it did great evil back in 1944, and people deserve compensations for that, at least a big apology. So that's basic. It was not a very revolutionary program, after all. So really, all they wanted, Chechnya had not much, but some oil of decent quality. Why don't you give us the control of our local oil so that we can generate income, pay reparations, and so on? Uh, it all went awry very soon, very much like in Russia. Uh, the reasons are a bit too complicated to disentangle, uh, but basically what happened that uh, General Dudayev, who by popular acclamation became the leader of Chechnya, was a typical 1950s leader from the third world. 
you know, Nasser was like that. Well, not narrow, but there are so many uh, uh, progressive officers who are coming to power in Latin America, in Africa, in Asia in the 1950s, early 60s, and based in mostly in coup d'etat or some kind of national liberation war. And they were all, you know, Gaddafi, you name it, you know, uh, perhaps Fidel Castro, uh, but Velasco Alvarado in, in Peru, uh, Sukarno in Indonesia, you know, they're all over the place. And they all basically say that we're going to take our oil or our Suez Canal or whatever is our national asset, we are going to take it away from foreign control and under the control of the newly created government. We're going to nationalize it. So when Dudayev said that they're going to nationalize their oil, one of his ministers, who was a Chechen, but read, well, a lot of, he was actually here in Chicago in, in this building, and he knew the work of Milton Friedman, he immediately ran to him and said, no, no, Johar, Johar, you don't nationalize anymore, you privatize. And you hope that foreign investors will come and you create uh, market-friendly conditions. Um, you, it's globalization time. You know, you're out of tune with the times. But what happened that once they tried to privatize the oil industry, the takers, of course, were local, well, essentially bandits, those who could mobilize more gangsters, those who could pay bribes, you know, grab positions in the government. Uh, the result is that both the Russian state and the Chechen state just lost their revenue. They had no more resources to play around. They could not build schools. They could not provide any jobs. They could not, for God's sake, provide any policing in the streets anymore. Uh, in Russia, it was deteriorating pretty much like that uh, in parallel. But what happens uh, in geometry, you know, parallels don't clash. But in politics, they do all the time. Uh, at some point, President Yeltsin of Russia realizes in 1994 that, all right, our shock therapy, our transition to market is failing. What are we going to tell the people? At that point, somebody suggests to him, we need a small victorious war. You know, we have these bandits in Chechnya whom we probably uh, need to punish. And mind it, this is the time when President Yeltsin of Russia orders to spend $2 billion dollars. That's in the country that is falling apart, but Russia is big, you know, there is some fat around the system. They spent $2 billion to renovate the Tsar's palace in the Kremlin, including the throne, and they actually overplated it with more gold than there had been during the Tsars in the 19th century. And Yeltsin really apparently got into his head the idea that he might become just a new Tsar, big restorer of glorious Russia. So it, I don't know, you, you, as a sociologist, I cannot describe it. You need Balzac, you know, or you, you, uh, you need Leo Tolstoy to describe something like, or Maxim Gorky. Uh, this is an amazing transformation. This is the man who stormed power in 1991 or 1990-91, uh, accusing communists of being corrupt and nepotistic and all drowning in their privileges. Now this man is gold-plating literally his palace just three years later. So one of those amazing transformations, you know, so don't think that just most the Muslims in the Caucasus are undergoing very sharp, very amazing transformations, you know. Uh, something ha is happening with people's heads. Uh, let's put it this way, very crudely. Uh, 
At this time, they decide that it would be probably a good idea to send a few Russian tanks into Chechnya and to end their farcical independence. Shamil Basayev, the leader of Chechen terrorists, as they call them today, Shamil Basayev at that time was more or less an ordinary third-world kind of guerrilla, honestly recognized, I, I think it, it was quite honest, and it, it is very, because there was no reason for him to lie. Uh, it was kind of his admission, he did not realize the importance of what he was saying uh, to the journalists. They asked him what was the most difficult day during the war, the first war, 95-96. And he said, well, the first three days, because we had no army. We had just 200 volunteers who were almost bandits, and they did. You know, if you look in the pictures in those books, you know, people with headbands and they're looking like Rambo, you know, uh, with big muscles, incredible bandoliers, uh, sunglasses. Nobody believed that these people could resist a regular army, and there were just a handful of them. But three days later, the Russian army was very, very slowly moving into Chechnya because this army was completely demoralized. This country, this, this army really did not want this war. Uh, so as they were very reluctantly entering Chechnya, peasants, common taxi drivers, you know, the, I know lots of such stories. People were selling their cows, they were selling their TV sets, videos, and buying guns on the black market. There was a huge black market of guns because the Soviet army arsenals had been looted. And you could buy a grenade launcher, not even a machine gun. You could buy it like you buy a used car. It was basically the same price and it was just as easy. Actually even easier, you don't have to register. Uh, so people were buying guns and they were coming into Grozny, into the capital of Chechnya to make a stand for their ancestors who perished in 1944, for the dignity of their nation, for the right to call themselves Chechens and not to be trampled by anyone else, and also because this is the culture where this kind of warrior spirit runs very deep since the 18th century, has not been fully extinguished by Soviet modernization. This is something this, uh, the Russian uh, military did not expect, but what the comments of Basayev or his admission betray, he did not expect it either. They just didn't know that the mass of people outraged so, uh, would show up. This is very much like Armenians in Karabakh war. Suddenly showed up because there are so many families where people were killed, slaughtered a generation perhaps earlier. So only the nationalities that survived genocide, that know that they can perish probably can understand this incredible urge, quite irrational, never again. You know, we are not going to allow to slaughter us like they slaughtered us last, last time. Uh, of course, this is a very prominent emotion in Israeli politics, for instance. And it's not necessarily a very constructive or nice emotion. I'm just saying it's strong and it's there. Because on strong emotions, on extreme emotions, usually dwell extremist forces. This is basically what happened in Chechnya. The extremists, the people who were not going to negotiate, and they had nothing to negotiate. Shamil Basayev was a zootechnician before the war, never finished college, and first of all, the bureaucrats in Moscow, actually nobody in the West would take him seriously. This guy 
could barely speak uh, in correct literary Russian. Uh, and even when he tried to behave like a statesman, he was a dismal failure. You know, he was actually a very good fighter, guerrilla fighter, but nothing else in his life. Why would he want peace? Why his fighters would want peace in a completely devastated country where they had no jobs, complete anomie, but now they are heroes. They actually, in the first round of war, they defeated Russians. They're heroes and they wanted to continue with this heroic status. But the whole world, basically the expectation was that now, by 1996, they defeated the Russian army. The Russians recognized, okay, you know, we'll leave you alone. Have your independence in five years from now. The expectation was that the Chechen Chechnya would be inundated with Western aid, but this is the peak of globalization. No, 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 export-oriented guys. You go into the world markets, and as Chechen delegations traveled all around the world, A, of course, they could not attract any investment because, as a friend of mine, a, journal, a Russian journalist said, who is going to invest in the country? We are president of the country. To do his physical, physiological necessities runs in the ruins behind his presidential palace because there is not just no electricity, there is no sanitation in the country, not even in the presidential palace. Uh, and secondly, wherever the Chechens were going, uh, they, they heard that, well, you're Muslims, you know, Saudi Arabia is your destination. You know, you really don't belong in here. You're not European. They were very, they were trying very hard to present them, themselves as Europeans. You can see from the pictures. Uh, they were just not credible to the majority of Europeans, and at least some, not many, you know, there is a big split in Chechnya over this. It is usually portrayed by journalists like Unified, and there is actually one book on that table, which is portrayed like Unified nationalities all flared up in the Islam. No, it's the kind of people who did not fit in normal civilian life, like Shamil Basayev, who found themselves more attracted to this Islamic radicalism. Because what else? He went to Afghanistan, he met bin Laden. Uh, some of bin Laden's associates came to Chechnya, and they brought this idea of never-ending Islamic revolution. Uh, one of my articles was, I, I had to fight uh, with the editors to call the art article Che Guevara's in Turbans, because very much like Ernesto Che Guevara in Cuba in the 1960s. Once the revolution succeeded, what are you going to do? You know, you cannot really run this government. You have no resources, you have no education to run a government. You're not credible to anybody. Uh, your republic is recognized by the Turkish Republic of Northern Cyprus only, uh, and you know, other kind of unrecognized entities in the world. Uh, what are you going to do? And then there is a rather strong, eschatologically strong ideology imported from somewhere that tells you that, well, this is because of Western complot. They have been killing Muslims. The British have been killing Muslims in India 200 years ago, and the French were killing Muslims in Algeria in the times of Abdel Qadr, 150 years ago, and again now. And they're killing us again, and we have to defend our people. We have to defend them all over the world. And if necessary, we will take the action even to the heart of evil, to New York, to Washington. And in fact, Shamil Basayev is on record saying before that, that the only way to stop the war in Chechnya is to send our people, our shahids, our martyrs against the West. His reasoning was very simple. 
said, they are sending cruise missiles against us. We have no cruise missiles. Our cruise missiles are human bodies. We are sending people with explosives against them. And if the West is not going to intervene with the Russians to stop this carnage, we are going to hit the West because they're aiding Russians. And of course, in a very unfortunate uh, remark, President Clinton compared Russia's campaign in Chechnya to President Lincoln's fight against separat separatism in this country. Uh, and Chechens were very keenly listening to that. And as you see, you know, these discourses of, on the one hand, Islam, and on the other hand, of this um, market-driven globalization where the Islamic peoples from the peripheries like Chechnya just don't fit, clashed at the level of symbols. But words don't kill people. There are actual forces there. There are actual horrible disillusionments. The world that the Soviet Union, okay, the world of modernity, there was no other world available to the Chechens. This world had collapsed in a very literal, literally cruel manner. Devastated towns, no more power grid, you know, schools don't function, there are no jobs, uh, there is no prospect that there ever will be the desirable jobs. And let me conclude with um, another story, because I do believe in the power of stories and tend to substitute for, his, for theory. Um, a friend of mine who is a colleague of mine, let's say, not a very close friend, who is a semiotician, he's professor of semiotics, for those of you who care what that means, you know, it's a very esoteric uh, part of philology. Uh, we had dinner in a, in, in a small cafe, uh, so privately run small, because people are trying to survive somehow, so they offer home cooking problem. Uh, they're amazing, you know. North Caucasians are actually very resourceful. So we are having um, dinner in one of those places. I invite him against all laws because I'm a guest. He's a host. He must invite me to his home, but I know he has not a breadcrumb at home. So I tell him, look, I get American dollars as my uh, salary. So I do have salary, and like you. And I invite you, so he was broken enough. You know, I, I was amazed that he accepted, actually. So we go to this restaurant, and over the meal, he tells me, you know, yesterday my son, who's in the 10th grade, came back from school with Quran and said that he's going to observe Uraza, which is the Ramadan uh, Lent. Fast. He's going to fast during Ramadan. Uh, so I asked him that this was not in the family tradition. So this is not coming from the family tradition. I know about it because I'm an anthropologist and philologist. Uh, my father was a Communist Party hero of so socialist labor uh, and chairman of Collective Farm. So it's not in the family. So I asked, son, let's sit down and talk. Explain to me your reason. Why? I said, father, your generation after you graduated from school, could go to college. And in your generation, after you graduate from college, you could become pilots, engineers, you could become professor of semiotics. But what can I become? Where do I go? There is one alternative is to go on drugs, or to be a drug dealer, and many are becoming. And there is another alternative, and I want to preserve some purity. I want to have principles. 
and I want people to remember that the last thing we can fall back is the religion of our ancestors. I want to introduce some order in this completely devastated country. What can you say? And let me finish here. Thank you very much. How do we... I'll make a few remarks and then, and then uh, open it up a little bit and then Georgi can re respond. Uh, let me tell you what I got out of the talk because I found it you know, very rich and, and uh, provocative in a way. Uh, first of all, I think uh, Georgi has shown that some of the more conventional ways we think about the Chechen war don't hold water. That this is not a clash of civilizations, to use this infamous phrase by Samuel Huntington. It's not uh, Islam against Christendom. I mean, as Chechnya was hardly Islamic at the outbreak of the war, whatever it became later because of, uh, of a need to sort of create a, uh, an identity of some kind. Uh, and Russia is traditionally Christian, but it would be hard to say that Yeltsin, despite the fact that he now learned to cross himself in the Orthodox fashion and probably has a portrait of, of the Virgin Mary or someone like that uh, above his desk or did have, was a Christian, that he was an old communist, a member of the Politburo. So, you know, these things don't make, make too much sense. Um, the, the, uh, another conventional explanation, and one that I think that in some ways Georgi subscribed to, was that the Chechens had a kind of national memory over a generation or so of the suffering they had had at the hands of the Soviets. Uh, that is, that they had been deported en masse with great loss of life in 1944 to Central Asia and that they held these resentments within them. Now that is somewhat belied by your own work and by what you said, uh, and you sort of undercut that view. So there's a little bit of a contradiction in what I heard, maybe I didn't hear correctly, because in fact, when they came back to Chechnya, their republic was returned to them. This is by under Khrushchev in the mid-1950s, and they developed into one of the Soviet nationalities. I, when I was at Moscow University, in the mid-1960s, I met a Chechen, and he was a tough guy, believe me, I would not fool with this guy, but he also had all those characteristics of hospitality that you mentioned. I remember the shish kebab, we called it shashlik, that he made in the wood, woods outside of Moscow. But he was a, a tough guy, and he talked about these, these events. Uh, it, they were certainly close to his mind. On the other hand, he was at Moscow University. He was um, he was benefiting from the affirmative action policies of the Soviet government, which were taking people who may not otherwise have gotten into these universities, sent them to the best universities, and then trained them to go back to their republic to become uh, philologists or, or engineers or whatever. So there must have been a mixed, a mixed and very tense feeling about the Soviet Union on, uh, on part of many Chechens. They were benefiting from certain policies. They had these terrible scars from the Stalin years. Uh, now, of course, 40 years had gone on, and new people had grown up in the years since Stalin's death. So then the question comes, uh, what are the reasons for this war? Why do Chechens fight? Uh, and there's also a second question, is why did the Russians launch the war? And Georgi's explanation, which I found a little thin, but it may be correct, uh, is that Yeltsin, at a time of trouble uh, in 1994, decided to launch a war uh, as a kind of instrumentalist way of keeping people off, attention off other problems, a sort of small victorious war to sort of prop up his, his regime. So kind of totally politically expedient. 
so, so I, I'm, I have a problem here because I'm, my, I'm trying to understand why the Chechens, in fact, rebelled uh, and why they, why they resisted and why masses of people came into this, into this, into their, their effort to, to resist Soviet power. Now, clearly, it was a miscalculation. Uh, Chechnya has suffered enormously. The city of Grozny, which was a Soviet city, built by the Soviets, right? Nothing existed there except a Russian garrison beforehand. Uh, a city has been destroyed. It's rubble now, and, and uh, it has to be rebuilt by the Russians. Obviously, the che Chechens can never do that. Um, the, all of the infrastructure, the grid, the, the institutions, the local academy of sciences, whatever, all of that is gone. The costs have been enormous. Tens of thousands of people have been killed. The rebels have been driven up into the mountains. They've been reduced to suicide bombing. It's an extraordinary, huge numbers live in exile in the neighboring republic, which had been part of that republic, Ingushetia, or in Moscow, in other parts of Russia, uh, where you still find Chechens. So, you know, obviously this was, uh, in, in some ways, an irrational decision to, to, at least as it turned out, to, to, to make this war. So I'm trying to think about this because in comparison with other ethnic wars of this kind or other wars like this, the Chechens sort of fit a pattern. There are things that, 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 that do suggest there may be reasons for this war. First of all, they were very, they were very poor. Uh, Ethnic wars are actually correlated positively with low levels of economic well-being. So in other words, the, the better you off you are, the richer the country, the less likely you are to have ethnic wars or civil wars. Makes sense, right? Uh, second thing that, that, that this is sort of light, political science light, right? We actually have findings in political science. There are actually things they've figured out through these so-called big end studies and so on. Another, another finding is that the more democracy you have, right, the, more, the less likely you are to have a civil war or an ethnic war, okay? So again, Chechnya fits pretty well. It's poor, it's in trouble. Locals might want to take over that one resource they have, the oil and so forth, the pipeline and local oil. Um, and they're, they're not a democracy. In fact, there's a positive correlation not between, there's a, uh, there's a positive correlation between democratization and the outbreak of civil war, right? So if, if you have democracy, you're not going to have civil war. But if you're democratizing, if you're getting rid of an authoritarian regime and you're trying to create the institution of democracy, that's very dangerous. People don't know what's going to happen and there can also be a breakout of war. So in all of these ways, Chechnya fits. And by the way, there's another finding, a terrific finding. It doesn't work for Switzerland, but a terrific finding you are more likely to have a civil or ethnic war if you have mountains, right? Mountains, why? Because you can hide in the mountains, because you can actually make a rebellion and sustain a rebellion. If you're out there on the plains or you try to do it in cities, the likelihood of success is much less. But a place like Chechnya, good place for a civil war. So lots of reasons why there might, there might be these people, you know, fit the pattern uh, uh, of other places where these were wars. And that still doesn't tell you, that, that sort of structural kind of explanation doesn't tell you why in this instance, at a certain moment, people actually resisted and actually went to war. So I'm still a little bit confused. And I want to propose uh, a little explanation, and I'm having to recreate in my mind the, the whole chronology, uh, which is not easy to do. It's a very complex 
the story, there's several wars we're talking about. There's a war in 94, and then there's another war in 99. There's a second Chechen war. There's an interlude in between where Chechnya has elections, which Georgi uh, actually solves some of these, these processes uh, firsthand, uh, in between. And that is, let's look at what was happening in the Soviet Union in the late 18, uh, 1980s and early 1990s and in the post-Soviet period. A number of things were happening. First of all, Chechens had become, over time, a real, in Soviet terms, nation. They had all the infrastructure of a Soviet-style nation. They had a territory of their own. They had state institutions. They had schools in their own language, a literature in their own language. That's one of the great achievements of Soviet power, is that for certain selected nations, and by the way, not all, they didn't create 200 national nations, they created you know, several dozen at the end. Uh, they selected out the big ones. Chechnya, though it wasn't a union republic, nevertheless was treated as a full-fledged nation. It, however, was not a union republic, which then meant by the rules of the game at the time that when the Soviet Union ended, it would not be an independent state, like Armenia, Georgia, Azerbaijan, Ukraine. Only the 15, this is their rules, the international community's rules, the rules of the game, the Chechens didn't have anything to do with this. Only those 15 got to be real independent nation states with seats in the UN and a place at the trough of the, of the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank, right? Only then. Chechnya or Tatarstan or Odmurtia, there are such places, Khakassia, uh, Sakha, Yakutia, whatever, none of these places were going to be independent states. Some of them wanted to be. At least three of them wanted to be, right? Chechnya, not the English, they, they opted out, but Chechnya. Tuva was sort of playing with this idea. Don't worry about Tuva. It's way out there in Asia somewhere. Interesting place. They sing with, with very interesting ways. And Tatarstan. But Tatarstan and Tuva didn't go to war. They made deals with the center. It was difficult. There were nationalist movements. There were nationalist separatists who wanted it. They, it was inconvenient. Tuva is on the, on the edge of the Soviet Union, but Tatarstan is right in the middle uh, in, the, in the Euros area. It was very difficult for it to be independent. And they made a deal with Yeltsin, and they avoided uh, a war and, and a separatism. They have all kinds of local power. Now, Chechia also was on the border, thought it could be independent. Uh, I wonder if how much hope it had that it would gain support from outside powers. It didn't receive any. Uh, they, most outside powers, like the United States backed the Russians against the Chechens. In fact, Bill Clinton, in one of his uh, more interesting statements, spoke of Yeltsin as Abraham Lincoln, preventing secession from the motherland, right? Uh, so so uh, th this is the situation. Now, what it seems to me is what's happening was the attractiveness of Russia, given the experience of the Chechens in the past, the pain they had suffered, the equation between the attractiveness of Russia and the Alienation from Russia was moving in the alienation direction. Yeltsin and Russia was a declining state, a state whose legitimacy and hold over Chechnya in the years of the late Soviet period under Gorbachev and then under Yeltsin was in serious decline. There was no pull towards Moscow. In the years 1991-1993, Yeltsin was a disaster. You may not remember this, but a number of things happened. Shock therapy, right? They're going to privatize rapidly. They're going to end the social welfare system of the old Soviet Union. They're going to make the, the Soviet Union like the West. And what did they do? They dr drove people into poverty. Uh, 
threw them out without any social protection. Criminality was widespread, and they had a huge fire sale and gave billions of dollars worth of the people's property to the oligarchs who still have power, those who are now playing footsie with Putin uh, in Russia today. Right? This, was, this is called democ uh, democratization or marketization. These are euphemisms for a really colossal ripoff. Democracy, by the way, has a very bad smell in Russia. It has a negative connotation in the Russian language today, precisely because it's identified with what happened during this, this, the, the, the decade of the 1990s. And something else happened. Yeltsin had a huge fight. He's not a, he was not a very good coalition maker. He couldn't bring different parts of the society together. Uh, in fact, he drove them apart. He polarized society. Yeltsin was very good when he stood on a tank. Anywhere near a tank, he was good. On the tank, next to the tank, he was good. And he would convince people not to attack the White House, don't go along with the coup uh, against Gorbachev and so forth. But by trying to do politics, he wasn't particularly good. He polarized the country. He ended in a kind of drunken moment, the Soviet Union itself, which was supported by a majority of the people in Russia, actually, about 70%. Uh, he separated the country, polarized it, and he had a big fight with the parliament, who, by the way, was led by a Chechen. I don't know if that's actually relevant, but a guy named Khasbulatov led the forces in those years, 91 to 93, against, against Yeltsin. Yeltsin, of course, eventually dissolved that parliament unconstitutionally and sent tanks against the parliament. It burned, and uh, most of those guys went to jail. So this is a period, 91 to 93, when there's this, this collapse of legitimacy of the Russian state, when Yeltsin's popularity is down. Uh, now, somewhere in that period, and you know the chronology better than I, the Chechens clearly have already declared that they want to be independent. They begin to move more and more towards independence. So I'm wondering, in order to find a full explanation of why this happens, uh, and Georgi gave us some very important elements, how they mobilized people very quickly after the, the, fir the first Yeltsin invasion, uh, what are the ingredients? Can we find, is there a way, given your ethnography on one level and your sort of macro-historical uh, insights on the other, is there a way to bring those things together to give us a powerful theoretical understanding of why this disaster actually occurred? It's my question to you. 